Well, good morning. Um, I'm Alan. I have the privilege of bringing the word to you. So I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews, actually. I know we just finished Hebrews, but I want to look at, uh, we will start in Hebrews chapter 10, and then we'll be jumping around the Bible. So have your Bibles open, ready to go, and be, be ready to turn to different passages with us. And uh, this morning, my subject is why we gather as a church. And this is part of a series we're doing called Build. And this comes from Jesus' statement that he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus' commitment to build a group of people and what that should look like is, is an amazing thing and an important thing and a very relevant thing for the times in which we live. As, um, Eric, as Pastor Billy mentioned, um, one of the things I've appreciated about Eric's leadership is, is he says, almost in passing sometimes, but about the gift of Sunday. And just hearing that has been a blessing to me, whether that's praying with the worship team or giving an announcements or whatever. He's used that phrase a few times. And that has just been a helpful reminder that, yes, this 1030 to 12 is a gift from God to us to be able to gather together with the people of God. And so that's the title of the message, Why We Gather, The Gift of Every Sunday. And as we come to this, I want you to know, I mean, in, in some ways it's an awkward subject to preach because you're here, so <laughs> it can seem like, well, I'm preaching to the choir, we're talking about why we need to come to church to a bunch of people who are already at church. My, my goal is not to try and convince um, I have different intentions. I, I hope that we'll be able to think about this time together in new and more biblical ways. To think about why do we do this? Why? I'm so glad you're here, but let's give, let's round out our thinking to be more biblical, more holistically biblical about the importance of this and how, what, really what God is inviting us to do when we come together as a church. So I think there are great things in store for us as we mine out some of the things the Bible instructs us on this. So we'll begin in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 to 25. And uh, if you didn't get a set of notes, um, Phil Claybrook out there in the floor will have some, but uh, hopefully you, you have some of the notes there. All right, verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And then here's the, the emphasis, And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, we've looked at this passage uh, a few times over the last few months, and we, we want to revisit it again and make sure that we are hearing what you would have us to hear from it. Lord, I pray that as I seek to explain the, the value of coming together as a church in a meeting, Lord, that more would happen than even I could accomplish with my words, that your spirit would go forth now in the preaching of your word and impress your vision, impress your values on people's hearts so that we would begin to resonate and, and be motivated by the things you are cherishing and you deem important and that we wouldn't just be so driven by what we feel like is important. So help us to do that, God, and encourage us and exhort us through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, a favorite lunch spot for me when I'm... Uh, traveling, which means go to, go to Odessa, um, is 
Jimmy John's over there on 191. And they have some, they have some devotional style things on the walls over there that are really interesting to read. Um, even, even if you've been in the men's bathroom there, there's a whole wall of just thoughtful things to think about while you're in, in there. It's, a, it's an interesting place. And uh, one of the things on the wall is this, this thing that's titled uh, 16 Things It Took Me Over 50 Years to Learn by a guy named Dave Barry, a nationally syndicated columnist. And number two on the list is the following statement. If you had to identify in one word the reason why the human race has not achieved and will never achieve its full potential, that one word would be meetings. <laughs> meetings. Now, while you may feel that to be very true in the work, work world, um, is that true in the church world? Now, I'm not a fan for, uh, of meetings just for meetings' sakes, uh, or e- just efficient, pointless, inefficient, pointless meetings, or poorly run, disorganized meetings. I get it. I don't like that kind of stuff either. either. But what about the meeting, like this meeting? Is, is it time for the modern church to move on from this? I mean, why do we actually gather together? In 2020, COVID forced pastors and churches everywhere to really think about these things in, in a way that we've never had to before. And, you know, we were fine back then, temporarily suspending services and shifting to online for a season, but we had to ask, okay, at what point does not gathering together in person become unfaithful to Scripture? Could this just continue perpetually, that we we never gather together except over a live stream? Can we be faithful to Scripture if all we ever do is virtually gather online, but never actually physically gather? I mean, asking a more fundamental question, why gather at all? Aren't there better alternatives? So we can think, well, why do we gather? Well, we gather for the preaching. Well, I could listen to preaching online. I can listen to world-class preachers in a second. I can pull them up on my phone and listen to great preaching. Well, it's, it's for the Bible, right? We love the Bible. Well, I can read my Bible on my own. Is it for fellowship? Well, I can gather with friends at someone's house or a coffee shop, and we can have church there too. Is it for the singing? Well, I can make a Spotify playlist of my favorite worship songs played by better singers and musicians than would be found in any local church. So is, it, is that why? In other words, if the only reason we attend is for those things, we can probably find better and more efficient ways to do each of those, and very quickly, Sunday morning would become irrelevant. But that mindset is very materialistic, very consumeristic. It's more driven by individualism and finding ways to suit my likes and my desires and interests. It doesn't really have anything to do with what God may be calling us to. But this text warns us about slacking off when it comes to gathering with God's people. It argues back with Dave Barry and says, no wait, there is one meeting, there is one meeting that is non-negotiable. Every other meeting may, in fact, be hindering human progress, but not this one. This is the one meeting we were made for, to use what Pastor Billy's been saying the last few weeks. And the moment we deprioritize that, we will become a spiritually endangered species. This is why Hebrews has so many warnings and encouragements and exhortations. 
We don't want to make shipwreck of our faith. The writer of Hebrews, we saw that when we went through that book, doesn't want us to make shipwreck of our faith. He wants us to endure to the end. And don't we want that? But in Christian culture, I find that the priority of gathering together is diminishing. We hear more and more from pastors that those who call their church, who call this church their home, that number of people is growing, but Sunday attendance is actually not growing. So what's going on there? I mean, even before COVID, it seemed that gathering together was becoming less and less important to professing Christians. But remember, look at this text here. This text warns us that as the day draws near, actually, actually, we should be all the more diligent to gather, not less. Now, why? Why is that so important? Again, my hope and aim in in this is that you would come to see the incredible privilege and gift that it is to gather with God's people every Sunday under the preaching of the word and that there is simply no substitute for that. And so we thank God and we do praise God for the substitutes like live stream and podcast on the occasional times that we do have to miss, whether for illness or vacation. But when that happens, oh, may we feel the ache of the insufficiency of the substitute and have a deep longing to return to the real thing the following Sunday. I mean, I've asked the question before, when you missed church, do you miss church? Do you miss church when you miss church? It's, it's concerning, and I think it would be in line with the writer of Hebrews' burden here that, that people don't miss church when they actually miss church. And I think the scripture would be exhorting us to miss it. And so I hope this message helps you see why you should miss it and that it would create this longing in our hearts to gather with God's people every Sunday and that we might be filled with anticipation about what God might want to do every week when we come together. So, in, a, in good Reformed tradition, I've got a five-point sermon. So, point number one, and I've got alliteration in Pastor Billy style with peas, because it's just so easy to do alliteration with peas. So, point number one, people. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter three. We'll be jumping around, so I want to invite you to follow me. Ephesians chapter three, beginning in verse seven. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities In the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus' other kind of ministry to preach to the Gentiles, the people who were not Jewish like Paul was, to preach to those Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and as he says it, to bring to light God the Creator's plan for redemption. And this is the ultimate plan. This is God's plan from the beginning of time would be to redeem a people for himself. 
And so God's intention for your life is that you would be brought back to him because from the moment you're born, because of sin, every one of us separated from God, distant from God, deserving of God's wrath because of our sin, because of our rejection of him. But God had put a, God put a plan in place from before the foundations of the world to rescue his people from their sin, to forgive them of their sin, to put them in right standing with God through Jesus. That is the reason why human beings are put on the planet is so that they could experience God's grace and forgiveness and be brought to God, the one who created them. Apart from that, life is empty and meaningless and has no purpose. So if you're experiencing the reality of meaningless, empty, purposeless life, God gave Paul that message was verse 10 so that through the church, now that's interesting, Not just individual converts, but that through the church, that is the gathered converts, something would be made known through them. And that plan for God to make his message known, verse 11, was according to his eternal purpose. So think about that for a moment. The the church is not an afterthought. It's not God's plan B and his efforts with Israel just failed. No, this was God's design from the beginning of time to establish for himself a people who would declare a certain message of redemption to the world. This is the very message Paul was entrusted with, but notice his delivery of that message was not carried out in isolation as a mere individual. Notice how it's connected to the church. Paul was not a Rambo type Christian on a mission from God going around and conquering things by himself as a Lone Ranger guy. No, he saw his crucial role in the context of God's larger purpose to establish an institution called the church. More specifically, as we've seen in the last two weeks in the messages, um, more specifically in the context of Ephesians 2, that would be the local church. Local churches that God establishes to be outposts, scattered outposts of his kingdom, occupying enemy territory in all nations. That's God's design, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And God used individuals like Paul, sure, but his ultimate plan and intention was to display himself not just through a random scattering of individuals, but to display himself through the church, through a corporate community. And as we saw from the last two weeks, again, those are local gatherings of people, people who gather together in his name and under his authority. These actual gatherings or assemblies are what make up the visible display of God's manifold wisdom. Amazing. So that's big picture what God's intention is for the church. Now that has to happen somewhere. So now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11 for point number two, the place, the mandate to gather together. We won't read all of 1 Corinthians 11. I know Pastor Billy was in this chapter last week. I encourage you to take a look at it. But in this chapter, in this whole section of last part of 1 Corinthians, Paul is giving the church instructions about when they gather. And what I want you to see is that five times in chapter 11, he uses this phrase, when you come together. So you can see it in verse 17, when you come together. When you come together. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, so my brothers, when you come together. Verse 34, 
that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. There's all these references. See, the early church wasn't just made up of everyone who considered themselves to be a believer. Sure, we're all part of the universal body of Christ. It's wonderful. Thankful for other churches that are gospel preaching around town. We're glad to have more outposts of God's kingdom proclaiming God's truth. We're not the only ones. Praise God for other churches who are doing that. But the church is, and that would be the, the universal, but in the people in the letters were actual churches that actually came together, which is why he says five times in chapter 11, when you come together. In other words, they assembled regularly. They had a time, we learned from Acts, on the first day of the week, that they gathered together physically in one location. And the New Testament instructs us about what that should look like and how one ought to behave in the household of God, how we are to build one another up using spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, how we are to pray and worship and give of our finances. The Bible instructs what should happen in the gatherings. These are not modern inventions, actually. They're actually rooted all the way back to the Old Testament, where going back to God defining his covenant community, Back then, God's people, see, they gather themselves together under his rule and reign to hear him speak and to submit to his authority. That's what happens in our time, a gathering at all. You don't have to be together physically to be a church. Why not just have an internet church? Why not just have internet only church membership? I mean, can a group of Christians be considered a church if they never actually gather together physically as one body, as one assembly? Biblically speaking, they can't. They, now, they may have to split up in times of persecution, or uh, they, may, they may be experiencing persecution. They can only, like in China, they can only meet in, uh, numbers up to 100. And so what they're saying that that has caused is lots of churches to be planted. So now you have more churches. Rather than having one huge megachurch of 1,000 people, why not have 10 churches of 100 if that's the restriction? You see, so thinking of, even in times of persecution, uh, are we thinking in terms of church planting? Um, so other size restrictions, there may be, may be laws about because of uh, the virus or whatever, but the church, we have to understand, the church is the people who gather together within the forms and structures that the Bible establishes for that gathering of people. As soon as you eliminate gathering, you eliminate church. So Jonathan Lehman in his very excellent book on this subject, One Assembly, says, what is a church? It's an embassy of Christ's kingdom. It's a group of Christians who together identify themselves and each other as followers of Jesus and as the church through regularly gathering in one place at one time in his name, preaching the gospel and celebrating the ordinances. The people become a people by regularly assembling in one place. Obviously, you know, they remain a church when they're apart. We're not just a church during this moment. We remain a church when we're apart, but only by extension of the fact that we do gather together regularly to be the church together. And by extension of that, that's why we can say we remain the church Monday through Saturday. You take that piece out of it, and if you no longer gather or assemble, then really you're no longer a church. See, gathering together under Christ's authority, on a regular basis, is what makes them a church, and it's what keeps them a church, even when they're apart during the week. 
And so part of what constitutes them as a local church is the fact that they're gathering together on a regular basis. You unhitch church from gathering, then why meet at all? And then church becomes whatever we define it. Church can be just a group of friends meeting together in the park for a Bible study. Well, that's the church. Is it? Is it though? God makes it very clear, the Bible makes it very clear that there are structures that God intends to shape and form his church, marked by qualified pastoral leadership, marked by baptism and the Lord's Supper, marked by indications of inclusion in a particular church for whom the pastor must give an account, for whom you must give an account to certain people. It's not this ill-defined community. If we don't get this church membership really won't make sense to us. We'll think that being a part of the universal body of Christ is sufficient for belonging to a church. But think about it. All of the New Testament's instructions about what the church is to do and who it is to organize itself under, they really can't apply if there's no way to tell who's in and who's out. Pastor Billy did an excellent job last week teaching on church membership. See, biblically speaking, the local church is not a nebulous blob of ill-defined edges all around it. No, the, the church is an entity with a defined boundary marker. And those that live and exist within that boundary are bound by certain commitments to one another. They have submitted their lives under the authority and structure that the New Testament establishes for their own good and growth. And part of their responsibility in that new covenant community is the responsibility to gather together under the authority of God's preached word. Man, guys, think about what a privilege it is to gather together to hear God speak to us. We love to say, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. This is a moment unlike any other. I mean, we preached on this a few weeks ago, the priority of preaching in the life of a Christian To to think that there is a time, unlike any other in our schedule, in our week, unlike listening to a podcast, where we gather with people on our right and our left and in front of us and behind us, we all have Bibles open on our laps and we are saying we are here to submit our hearts and our lives to the authority of God's word. That, what a privilege that is. What a statement that makes. What a way to say that we as Christians recognize God as our authoritative voice. And we bring our hearts and lives in submission to Him every Sunday when we gather. Now, I want to be careful on this subject because in making this case from Scripture that God's people must gather, it may raise questions about are there ever exceptions. So I want to just give a couple of caveats for that. Certainly there are emergency or safety situations. We've, we've canceled a Sunday morning because of an ice storm or snow or churches may have to cancel because of wildfires or hurricanes or loss of power and water at the building. Um, I think the initial stages of COVID fit into this category where um, there was a lot of unknown things and, and things were new. But let's remember this, that temporary provisions like that don't all of a sudden redefine us. So if a temp, but, but if a temporary provision becomes a permanent thing that gets baked into our organization, that's a problem. So that's why we want to understand what God in Scripture calls us to. And so we, there's an allowance, there's an understanding, a provision for temporary suspension of services. But as I started out in the beginning, there comes a point where if that continues perpetually, 
we are treading on unfaithfulness to what Scripture has called us to. Now, what about, and I I really have a heart for folks um, that are bedridden, homebound, people with physical health limitations. I was a nurse for 18 years. I've seen that up front. It is a genuine reality that some people physically cannot come to church. So am I implying that those people are just living in disobedience to God's word and the Hebrews passage? What do we do with that? Now, that's where I would say praise God for technology in the time in which we live because that technology can be used to serve them. And I'm happy that we are able to use technology to serve them. And as I've talked with those kinds of folks, they are so grateful that we have technology that can serve them, that they're able to join by live stream on Sunday mornings. But as is always the case with technology, a good use of it for one person can become an abuse of it for another person. And what I've learned, actually, from talking to those in our church who have these kinds of physical limitations, physical limitations that make it literally impossible for them to come, is that they have a deep longing that they could be here with us in person. They grieve the fact that they can't. In other words, as soon as the gift of Sunday is not an option because of a physical limitation, you quickly realize how much, a gift of Sunday, uh, how much a gift Sunday really was. May we not wait until it gets to that point. May we realize now and do all we can now to not neglect meeting together, but doing so actually all the more as we see the day drawing near. It's like sometimes, uh, I mean, my faith is just so stirred as I've, I've got a couple of people in mind Um, their love and commitment to God's word. They're longing to be here. They're grieving over the fact that they they can't. Not in a guilt way, but in a, a, I I wish I could be there. I just can't. And uh, we're serving them with the live stream, and I'm so happy to do that. But their, their love for the church is evident in that longing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an evidence of God's grace in their lives. And it's a really a fulfillment of what we're talking about this morning. So God, God, again, not only wants to establish a people for himself, but a people who really value the assembling of themselves together in a particular place. Because when that happens, he means to do something when they gather. He, he has an agenda, which is point three, presence. The Holy Spirit in the gathered church. So now flip to 1 Corinthians 14. And look at verse 12. I wish we had time to look at this whole chapter. I'm just going to drop into one verse. Paul says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, I think there's a mild bit of sarcasm in Paul's voice when he says that, strive to excel in building up the church. Now Paul spends this entire chapter talking about how people should behave when they gather together for church. In verse 12, he talks about manifestations of the Spirit. Now, contextually, he's talking about spiritual gifts and how they operate when the church comes together. And notice the connection that he makes between manifestations of the Spirit and building up the church. It's like he's saying, you want to see manifestations of the Spirit? Strive to excel in building up the church. In other words, the Spirit shows up when we do the hard work of loving others and building up others and pursuing spiritual gifts. I love the line of the song that we sang. To send me out to those 
in, in love to those around me. Build my life so that it's not just my life is built on some principles, but that that actually plays itself out in building up the church through the way we love and encourage other people. He makes that connection right here in verse 12. It's clear from the chapter that God, the Holy Spirit, intends to manifest himself when the believers gather together and assemble themselves. This should be a precious gift, gift to us, not something we ever take for granted. Because it too is God's design for his people, and it's one of the primary roles that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of the church. Just to think, quick fly over Genesis to Revelation and the idea of the presence of God manifested through the Holy Spirit. Remember, God's presence was with Adam and Eve in the garden, but it was lost at the fall. It was partially recovered in the tabernacle, but even then it was reserved for this special place. And so this temple system was a physical place where God would manifest himself, most especially in the Holy of Holies, which could only be accessed by a high priest at a certain time of year. God's people all along would experience his presence, but they would have to do so from a distance, mediated by a high priest and sacrifices, seeing the smoke rise in the distance as a sign that God's wrath has been turned away. He is pleased. My sins have been atoned for. The presence of God's taken place over there in that tabernacle as they stand on the outside watching it. This system which was temporary, eventually fell into disrepair. And whatever sense of the presence of God they had was lost again. God's people longed for the promised day when God would restore his presence to his people. Well, finally, enter Jesus Christ. Christ would come and with him the promise of the Holy Spirit and the inauguration of a new and better covenant made by his blood. Hebrews unpacks this throughout the course of the book. In, in the gospel, Jesus renders all of the sacrificial system, everything that came before him to have been fulfilled as he is the true and better priest, the true and better sacrifice, the true and better temple. He, he initiates and brings in a covenant that replaces the old, that fulfills the old and everything that it anticipated and pointed to. By that, Christ coming marked the return of the lost presence of God to the people of God. In Jesus, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have the return of the lost presence of God to the people of God, only now it's way better. It's not restricted to a holy of holies. It's not restricted to one man. It's not confined to the bounds of a sacrificial system. Jesus opens the way to the presence of God. When we assemble, he is with us in our midst. Every time we gather as a church, we have the chance to experience this presence of the living God with his people once again. He's with us. A room full of people with Bibles on their laps is itself a faith builder. These people sitting and listening to God's word. He's at work when we sing together too, isn't he? Mark Dever says, when we hear one another singing the same words all together, there's both a common melody and a diverse harmony that expresses the unity and diversity of the local church body in a way that encourages us to press on together. Yes, it does. He does this through prophecy. Well, back up on singing. I remember after we started meeting again, this would be a whole message, you know. Um, when we started meeting again, the, a consistent feedback we got was, it was fine to hear the worship on the live stream, but when we're in this room and we hear the voices of the church, 
Oh man, my faith is built. I'm stirred. I, like you, you know, you know what so and so, brother so and so, sister so and so is going through, and you hear them singing these lyrics. Man, your faith is stirred. See, something happened. That's what Dever's getting at. It hearing that encourages us to press on together. Our faith is built when we hear one another singing. We talk with the guys in the sound booth. We, we want to mix sound in a way that's full and non-distracting and that and compels people to want to sing. But the most important voice in the room that needs to be heard is not the worship leader or the backup singer or whatever. It's the voice of the congregation. May we hear one another singing because God intends to build our faith through that. He has a number of ways, actually, that he wants us to know that he's here with us. If we'll just have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. He's eager to manifest himself among us when we gather. I love this quote from Bob Coughlin in his excellent book, True Worshippers. He says, every time we meet, God is eager and able to do more than we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's Ephesians 3.20. He says, there are no normal Sundays. Love it. Just fresh opportunities to behold the glory of the Lord as we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. No normal Sundays. Can we, can we agree to think that way about the gathering of God's people? Because God intends to manifest himself when we gather in a unique and special way through the songs we sing, through the preaching of the word, through the prayers we pray, through the ordinances we practice. God is manifesting his presence. Obviously, he's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere at once, but he is uniquely present when his people gather submitted to his word and around the gospel. Wonder of wonders, treasure of treasures, the gift of every Sunday. So this gets proclaimed in the ordinances. Point number four, proclamation. When we talk about ordinances, we're talking about baptism in the Lord's Supper. Sunday mornings doesn't just identify the people of God gathered together in a particular place where they experience his presence. It is all of that, but it's also the context where his redemptive work gets proclaimed through the ordinances. And I'm getting this from 1 Corinthians 11. If you want to look at verse 26. It says in the instructions about communion, which we're going to share at the end of the sermon. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So think about that. Eating the bread, drinking the cup is a proclamation and remember, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's not you individually. If that was the case, you know, can you share communion in your house when you're by yourself? I mean, I, I, any, anything you do, you could, sure, you know, use that to help you remember the gospel. But that's not the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted. That's not the ordinance of the church. What makes it the, the ordinance of the church is that in verse 26, when you do this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim is that all those yous are y'alls. When y'all do this, y'all corporately are proclaiming something. The corporate nature of what you're doing is the proclamation that God has brought together a diverse set of people, unified them under the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 2, broken down every dividing wall, created one new man. And in that, it, that gets expressed when we share communion together, where we eat the same bread. We drink the cup together. 
there are lots of ways to practice it, but a, a personal preference, and I'm, I'm being clear, it's just a personal preference. I know other people can, you know, they come down the aisles and they get it and they eat and drink on their way back. It helps me, especially when I'm up here and we, we do communion, to see every hand and every head pretty much at the same time goes back at the same time. There's a picture. I'm seeing the gospel in that. I'm seeing this is a visible, tangible expression of what God has done in the gospel. He seated us at the same table, a table of grace, a table of mercy. We were enemies cast out, but he's brought us in and seated us at his table. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Love that lyric from that song we sing. That gets pictured, it gets visibly displayed when we take communion together. Even the physical sense of this action. It's like, keep your eyes open when that happens because it's a picture of what God does in the gospel. So, in, when we say ordinance, ordinance, it's just a word that means those things that Christ ordained to take place perpetually in the life practice of the church. That's what an ordinance is. So as we go about making disciples, Matthew 28, we are told to baptize them in the name, which means under the authority and ownership of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then at the Last Supper, Jesus commanded his followers to celebrate the inauguration of the new and everlasting covenant made by his body and blood and symbolized by the bread and the wine. Both ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are outward visible signs of inward spiritual realities. In baptism, we're visibly portraying what happens at conversion. The old life dies and is buried with Christ in his death on the cross. And a new life rises out of the grave, having been made new by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So baptism isn't regeneration. It doesn't affect the change in your heart, but it is a symbol of it. And we do it, it's carried out in obedience to Jesus' command to, as you go about making disciples, baptize them. And there's other messages we've preached on baptism and all that the Bible teaches on that. So I'm not going to go into the modes of baptism and why the only way the word baptism is ever used in Greek in the Bible or outside the Bible is immersion. Um, So I'm not going to go into that or make that point. But if you've not been baptized, let me encourage you to follow the Lord's instructions and be baptized. Testify outwardly to the inward work of grace that's been brought about in your life. Proclaim his redemption to your soul and to those around you through water baptism. Now we do a baptism class where we help folks understand what baptism is. In fact, we've had a number of folks recently take the baptism class. And if, when, if any of you took that and you're ready to move forward with baptism, we'll happily make that happen. If you wonder, well, where do you do that? Um, we have a portable baptismal. So we, we bring out the tank and we set it up and we fill it up with warm water and we get it done. So let's put that thing to use. Let's wear that thing out. If you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you to be baptized. What about communion? Both then and now, our union with Christ and with one another gets portrayed in communion. When we eat and drink together, Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who do we proclaim it to? Well, to ourselves and to one another. Picture this. Again, I know I already went into communion, but I just, this is how, this is what's happening, even if we're not saying this with our mouths. We're, We're holding the bread and the cup. Jesus 
died for my sins, says one person. And the person next to him, yeah, and mine too. And then they look down the aisle and see that single struggling mom who's battling guilt and disillusionment. And they say, sister, he died for your sins too. You're holding the cup. You're holding the bread. See, communion is not just a me and God moment. This is a public proclamation of the gospel and visible display and reminder of what Jesus has done for us and the unity that the gospel creates among every sinner that gathers together around the gospel, around God's goodness. Some churches share in communion every week. And uh, at the recent um, meeting with all the pastors in our region, one of the brothers was was saying that they share in communion every week and he made this comment. He said, the, ser- the sermon may stink, but the bread and cup are coming. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love that. You know, in, in communion, we, we get to feast on the goodness of the gospel as the community of redeemed sinners. And so we're gonna close the service doing that. And before we do, I just wanna leave you with some practical things of how we can make the most of every Sunday. Point number five making the most of every Sunday. And I have no doubt many people will find themselves in a variety of places this morning. Some people feeling like, look, I'm here just about every week, so this message isn't for me. Others may be saying, well, I may not be here every week, but all of this just sounds really legalistic and judgmental. Well, if you're here every week, praise God. Um, I'm not here every week. In fact, we're going on vacation in two weeks. We'll be visiting friends, and we'll be out in uh, the last Sunday of May. So this is not a, the the point here is not to get you to check the attendance box so that at the end of the year you get a gold star for perfect attendance. That's that's not, not the intention of this message. I'm aware though that you or I could be a regular attender and Sunday can quickly become just an absent minded routine that you no longer really think about, much less long for. Do you realize that you can neglect meeting together in your heart, even though your body is still showing up? So this word is for all of us, from hardly ever attenders to occasional attenders to regulars. I think God wants us all to see what a gift it is to gather together under his word. So just practical questions to ask. What adjustments might God be calling me to make so that Sunday gatherings can become more of a priority in my schedule than they actually are? Just a simple question. That's going to be answered differently for different people. I can't answer that for you. You know your schedule. You know your habits. But what might be God calling you to? For some, the answer may be nothing because there actually just isn't anything hindering my participation in Sundays. If that's the case, great. Praise God for that. Thank God for that. For others, some tweaks may be in order. And it's just good to let the Lord show us that. But for all of us, um, I've put some practical tips on the, on the back of the notes for how to approach Sunday. And so here are just some, some quick practical things. Pray for the pastor and the worship leader. Oh man, that, please do that. Read the passage beforehand if you have it, if you have it. I realize we don't always have it to you in advance, but we'll, we'll work on that. Be smart on Saturday night. You know, are, are there certain things maybe that you do that make Sunday morning harder? Another point is just how you talk about Sundays with your family. Do you talk about it with joy and anticipation? Or like it's a convenience or problem to figure out. I would encourage you to talk about it with joy and anticipation. If you have a rough morning at church with a little one, 
That's certainly our experience. We know what that's like. I've got pages in my Bible that are like loose and torn because tennis shoe is like, you know, stepping on the Bible and my eyes getting clawed in the middle of the sermon. And I'm like, I just, I got about 25% of today's sermon because I just had a squirmy kid uh, the whole time. Uh, What do you do? Well, that's a great chance to go back and make it a point early in the week and just re-listen to the message. Take notes during the sermon of the points that stood out to you. I think that's a better method than trying to outline and just write down everything the pastor's saying. I I think a good note-taking strategy is to say, what resonates? What stood out to me? What was a point that, that made me go, hmm, oh, that was, that was good. I want to remember that. That's something to think about. Write that down because probably five minutes after the amen, it's, it's leaked out. So uh, <laughs> that's just a good practice to do. Uh, pray with someone after the service about what God may be showing you. This is a great way to hold yourself accountable to what you're hearing. It's also a great way to recruit the grace and help of others in the fight for faith. James, think about James. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you and he will lift you up. As we humble ourselves before God, he promises to lift us up. Coming to someone after service and saying, can you just pray about this with me? I want to share this. I want to confess this. I want to ask for help with this. You're humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God that exists to lift you up as you confess your need to him and to others. So take advantage of that grace. Um, to whatever degree you can, try to minimize interruptions and distractions during the service. Maybe use the bathroom beforehand. Minimize conversations in the hallways while church is going on. Bring snacks and things to do for little ones. Uh, and they're just, just simple practical things. Carry an actual Bible. I mean, I, I, I love that I have my Bible on my phone and that, that, can, be, that can be fine. I just... I just I've heard Bob Coughlin say so many times, people died so we can hold this book in our hands. There's nothing else I do with this book except hear God's voice with it. I, I work my job on this phone. I do a lot on this thing. Praise God the Bible's on it. There's nothing, this is a category all to itself. So no condemnation if you're reading the Bible from your phone. Um, but consider just, you know, having an actual thing just to minimize the distraction. Maybe you're super disciplined and you're not checking Facebook during the sermon and you're not jumping back and forth between your Bible app and Facebook. Great. But for most of us, that's probably hard. So just try to minimize distractions. Show up early so you're ready to go to church and avoid rushing out quickly when it ends. We may occasionally have to do that, but we should guard against that becoming a weekly pattern. So, to wrap this up, I mean, what do, what do we do? This, may our hearts just be filled with gratefulness for the privilege and opportunity to gather together every Sunday around the gospel, under God's word, with God's people, in God's place, established by him, the local church, that the idea of the local church, established by God himself, we see in the New Testament, from before the foundations of the world. May we look with anticipation to those times together. May we long for its return when we have to miss. And if there may be a season like we shared with you last week is going on in Nepal where we have to temporarily suspend services, may it be as short as possible and may we do all we can within reason to return as quickly as possible to gathering together. And may we never take for granted the precious gift of gathering together to sing the gospel and pray the gospel and preach the gospel and celebrate the gospel in the ordinances of the church.